This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Hey there, and welcome to the 14th episode of the Northeast Agronomy Podcast. This is the week of September 7th. I am Chris Skuse. With me, as always, is Emily Oligar. We are your hosts. Our main topic for the day is going to be what is bugging you in your row crop. Emily, who are our guests today? Thanks, Chris. Today, our guests are David Owens, Ryan Vermilia, and Tony Gady. First up, we'll start with David Owens. David is a University of Delaware Extension Entomologist. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, David? Sure, and thank you for having me on the podcast this week. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so I, I joined University of Delaware at the end of 2017 as the extension entomologist for both field crops and vegetable crops. Uh, I grew up in Southeast Virginia, uh, did my bachelor's and undergrad, uh, master's degree at Virginia Tech. Uh, and that's really where I fell in love with agriculture and agricultural pest management. From there, I went to Florida to study sweet corn insect pest management and did a couple of postdocs, one in North Carolina, one in Florida, uh, before I came here. Thanks, that's awesome, David. Um, next, we'll have Ryan Premelia, who's joining us. Ryan is the pioneer field agronomist in Eastern Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, and Delaware. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Um, do you wanna tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, good morning, Emily. Uh, Ryan here, covering two territories here in the Mid-Atlantic. Um, I think you did a good job rallying off the states there. I'm also a fellow Hokie, so it's good to have another one here on the podcast this morning. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, finally, we have Tony Gady here, um, who is the U.S. Product Manager for Corteva for insecticides and specialty herbicides. Thanks for joining us today, Tony. Do you want to share a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Thank you, Emily. I've been with Corteva just over a year. I've been in the egg chemical industry for over 15 years. I come from a various background uh, managing different U.S. geographies, as well as a business manager for aerial application. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. All right. Before we get to our main topic of the bug, what's bugging you in row crops, we have to start out with our odd and unexplained. This is where we talk to a local agronomist about something they've seen this growing season that might be out of the ordinary. Ryan, what do you have for us today? Yeah, so another busy week in the field. Um, a lot of scouting going on. Corn harvest is is on the verge. Uh, we got some guys starting up and doing a lot of looking at beans this week, especially double crop beans that have really started to take off. Um, and I found something that I've never um, – I've never seen myself, which is always cool when you find something that, that you've never seen before. I've seen it on maybe Ag Twitter or something um, of that nature. But we were walking a soybean field, and there were three or four um, circles in a soybean field where the plants were completely dead. And it was maybe a five by six or um, six by six circle completely, completely um, around. And the plants were dead. They'd grown to the height of the rest of the field, uh, but you could tell something had just came in and whacked them. And we've had a typical mid-Atlantic summer here, but we've had some pretty um, severe thunderstorms. And the best thing that the grower and I could come up with was that it was lightning strikes in the middle of a soybean field. Um, no sign of disease. The plants literally looked like you had left them in an oven for about three hours too long. 
And since we can't really confirm it because we weren't there with the storm, um, that was what we would come up with. So just something that you've seen pictures of, um, you know, on social media of other agronomists and, and uh, people in agriculture finding it was pretty neat for, for me to find my first lightning bolt in a soybean field. Yeah, that's a good one. That We definitely had some uh, storms over the last couple of weeks that uh, you could uh, probably have quite, find quite a few of those in the fields around because we had quite a bit of lightning over even last night and, uh, and last week as well. So that's a pretty cool story. All right. Thanks, Ryan. We'll move on to our main topic of what is bugging you in row crops. And David, once again, thanks for being here. But my first question to you is, what were some of the main pests that you saw this year in row crops? Thanks, Chris. Well, you know, as, as you know, every year is different and every crop is different and gets its own different uh, pest complex. Um, so I've been looking at corn, wheat, alfalfa, and soybeans and sorghum uh, this year. Uh, is there one in particular that you'd like me to start with? Yeah, I would say probably the main one of corn is one people are most concerned about. Okay. Sure. So in corn, the, the biggest issues that we had this year uh, were at, the, at planting time with slug damage. Uh, we had a very warm winter. It allowed a lot of slug activity to increase. Uh, a lot of eggs were in the soil. And then right when we started planting corn, uh, April cooled down. May was cold. Uh, first part of June was cold and cloudy. And so those slugs hatched out right when the corn was planted and some fields had some pretty severe damage. Um, I've, I heard of a number of fields get treated with deadline. Uh, other growers kind of waited and, and hoped for warm weather to get the corn growing. And, and some of those fields look good now, uh, but they were starting to look a little rough back in uh, first week or so of May. That's a that's a good point, and that's something that is always an interesting conversation to have with growers because we've gone more towards the um, cover crop, uh, making sure something's growing there all year to no-till uh, to where we have that extra fodder up on the ground, and those really do help out the soil. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you when you gain something, you almost lose something else. And, and that slug pressure really does seem to, to grow in those no-till situations or in those cover crop situations. Are you seeing that as well? Yes, slugs, uh, slugs are favored by no-till. Uh, the fastest way to get rid of a slug problem is to, is to disturb the soil. Uh, and, and my predecessor, Joanne Whalen, she did some work showing that uh, vertical tillage and strip tillage can really help. So we can still do some conservation, uh, but also bring in some soil disturbance. And that can help. Uh, that's, a, that's a really good point you bring up. So there, you guys have some published work that would uh, be able to show that the vertical tillage will kind of almost give you the best of both worlds a little bit? We've got the trial summaries posted on UD's extension website. It has not been um, published in uh, academic uh, reviewed journals, uh, but we do post all of our uh, extension demonstration trials on our pest management website. It's a little bit difficult to find these days. Our website did a, a revamp, but um, if you type in UD extension pest management, 
there should be a tab somewhere on that page for research and extension results. Perfect. That's good stuff. Um, now let's move on to soybeans. What were some of the main pests you saw this year in soybeans? So soybeans, uh, again, slugs. Uh, slugs hammered a lot of fields early in the season. Soybeans are interesting in that they can handle some stand loss. They can compensate for stand loss, unlike corn, but soybeans can't handle the feeding, whereas corn can. So we, we had a lot of problems with slugs early in the season. Um, I, I, again, fields got replanted, some fields got treated. Um, if you're going to treat a field, it has to be done before those beans emerge out of the soil because those slugs will feed underground. Whereas with corn, we can kind of wait and see what, what the slugs are doing to the crop before we, we pull a trigger on an expensive bait application if, if we feel that it is necessary. Um, moving on into uh, kind of right now, uh, maybe a little earlier in the summer, we had quite a bit of green cloverworm activity. Uh, they defoliate beans. But beans can take a beating from green cloverworm. Um, our thresholds are pretty conservative in the vegetative stages, about 40 to 50% defoliation. And that's really eye-catchy. Uh, oftentimes, you start noticing it when you're about 10-15%. Uh, but beans can take a lot of beating early on. Late, once we move into the reproductive stages, we need to be a little bit more careful about defoliation because we need all of those leaves to fill up pods. Um, corn earworm has been fairly quiet. Uh, we've got some soybean looper in the mix, uh, some earworm, uh, some stink bugs. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd say slugs were probably the biggest issue uh, for soybeans this year. Great. You mentioned in the defoliating part, and I and when you Google that, and anybody can Google that online, you know, percentage of defoliated leaf, and uh, it is amazing at how much 40 or 50 percent of it is when you're looking at it. But um, what the the one question I had for you was, you said 40 to 50 percent defoliated in the vegetative stages, but in the reproductive stages, we need to watch that more. And that, you know, is from when the beans are flowering and on. What what would you recommend a spray of an insecticide? What percent defoliated would you recommend one in, in uh, reproductive stages? So around 15 to 20%. Uh, that's about when soybeans start losing yield potential. Um, but also make sure that you still have something there. Uh, so take a sweep net out into a field that looks suspicious. Make sure you still have defoliators present. So you're not just blanket spraying uh, leaves. That's a very good point. But that's a, a drastic difference from the vegetative stages to the reproductive stages, going from 40 to 50% to, you said, 10 to 15% there? Yes. Yeah. Um, did you see a difference in earworm between 2019 and this year? We sure have. Uh, and that really showed up in some of our trap counts, too. So on the, for vegetables, we maintain about a dozen earworm uh, trap sites. Uh, these have pheromone traps and black light traps. And last year, we had extremely high earworm activity across our entire trapping network. It was uh, one of the top three years going back to 1999. This year, uh, our flight has been much more sporadic. Some sites have had 
near record low flights. Other sites have had uh, very high flights. Um, and so earworms have been very patchy. Last year, we had a big wave come through right around the third week of August, uh, where it was like most of the double crop beans got hit by earworms. And, but it was a very brief flight. So once that wave came through, it finished up and that was done. This year, it's, it's been much more sporadic. And I think some of that also has to do with, uh, with the weather patterns. Last year, we were extremely hot, extremely dry, uh, starting at the end of July. And that really sped corn along um, and corn was planted earlier. This year, corn was uh, planted over a wider window and we've had, you know, we haven't had as extreme of daytime temperatures. Uh, we've had a little bit more moisture. Uh, and so corn has not dried down quite as fast as last year. So that the, the moths have not been driven out as quickly as they were last year from corn. So in your opinion, do you think that we have the same amount of your worms here? We just haven't seen them drive out of corn into soybeans yet? Or do you think there are actually less population here this year? I think for us, they might be a little less. Yes. And that's just due to the weather pattern, you think? I, I think in large part. Now in Virginia, they're dealing with very large populations of corn airworm um, that we, we're just not seeing this year. That's interesting. So they kind of, you think maybe they just didn't push up, you know, didn't push up past Virginia this year? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, we do grow our own moths here in, on Delmarva. Uh, they overwinter here as well. Uh, but we do get quite a bit uh, from the south. But we just haven't seen it this year. Gotcha. Really cool stuff. Um, what would you recommend? Anything that you saw this year um, on, the, on the pest side? What, what can we do? What did we learn from it this year? And what can we do next year to maybe help mitigate that? All right. Well, um, let me start with corn. Because um, something I didn't mention uh, just a minute ago on corn, up in the northern part of the state, had a couple of fields that had corn rootworm in it. Uh, these, these are beetles that feed on the roots. Uh, the adults come out in late July through mid-August and they can cause lodging. These are pests on corn that is not rotated. So if you saw corn rootworms in your field, you know, more than one beetle a plant, then next year, either rotate that field out of corn or look at some BT varieties that target corn rootworm. For, for slugs, Boy, I tell you, slugs are a, they're a hard one to manage uh, prophylactically. Um, we need to be watching that, that crop very carefully. Uh, we scout slugs with, with shingle traps, uh, and then we check those shingles early in the morning. Uh, slugs will hide underneath of them. Uh, and once we start seeing about, let's say, two to three slugs per shingle, then, then we are uh, much more concerned about that field. But that's, that's a pest where we just need to be watching that crop like a hawk. Um, for corn, we need to make sure that we're not, um, we're not missing areas of a field. I've seen fields where slugs just hammered one, you know, the, like the back corner of the field that you don't want to go all the way out to, but leave the front half fine. Um, 
same with soybeans. We want to know what that slug population is before we plant into it. Uh, if you're planting uh, into a thick cover crop, you need to be really careful with that. Slugs will hide in the soil. They'll hide underneath of residue when that gets pushed over when planting. Um, and you need to pay attention to getting good soil seed contact on those soybeans. Get them into the soil through that cover crop. No, that's all great stuff. It's interesting that you bring up rootworm, and that's something that I think in the local area has been kind of back and forth, because especially where you are in Delaware, that the soils are drastically different from the northern part of the state to the southern part of the state. So in your opinion, um, you know, do what part of the state might have to worry about it, or what would be better is what soil types do you think, or is there a difference in rootworm activity in different types of soil? There is. Uh, rootworms generally don't like the sandier soils that we have in most of Sussex County and, and Southern Kent. Um, they prefer heavier ground and that's because the sand basically scratches up their, their exoskeleton. Um, so I'd say heavier ground uh, on corn fields that have been following corn uh, for a couple of years so that that allows their populations to build up. These beetles are specialists. They only feed on corn roots, maybe some other grasses, but, but uh, they do not survive on uh, broadleaf. So if you rotate away from it for a year, would that, you think, mitigate the problem? Yes. Yeah, so uh, those eggs overwinter. The females lay eggs in cornfields. Those eggs overwinter in the soil. And when they, when they hatch out in the springtime, those larvae have to find corn roots. And if they can't find corn roots, they will starve to death. Great. That's really great stuff. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. Tony, um, I'd like to ask you a few questions. I know you're working uh, for Corteva on the marketing product side, the portfolio side. What in Corteva's portfolio is working on the pests um, this growing season? Sure. We have a SpinMac portfolio that including uh, Radiant SC and Intrepid Edge, they're, you know, great performers that do a number on those hard to control worms. Um, the one that's a little bit more near to my heart is our Isoclass Active portfolio, including Transform WG. Um, they're in multiple crops, or it's uh, registered in multiple crops, and uh, they're superior on like aphid controls and plant bugs and white flies. That's been a growing product for us, you know, across the U.S. and especially up in the Northeast here. That's great. Um, what is the portfolio going to look like in the future? Do you have anything coming down the pipeline? Yeah, R&D at Corteva has really been uh, working overtime. Uh, since our inception, we're really trying to um, continue our robust pipeline. We have over 30 in insecticides that we're looking at um, for the not too distant future. Um, some of them are including in uh, premixes, but some of them are, are novel uh, active ingredients like uh, isoclass that just been uh, re-registered as well. That's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, so Tony Ryan here. I got a quick question. There was um, some news made by Corpirifos earlier in the year, and I was just wondering if you might be able to give us a little bit of clarification of, you know, maybe what happened um, as far as a court ruling and then kind of what Corteva is looking at in the future. And then if growers, um, you know, have concerns, maybe what, 
what they should be getting um, ready for in the, in the growing season if they had planned on using Corpyrifos. Sure. Well, Corteva did announce that they're exiting the Corpyrifos business. Um, we have uh, stopped producing it. We still support Corpyrifos and its labeled uses. As I mentioned, we had over 30 insecticides in our pipeline and they're more of a targeted insecticide instead of a broad spectrum. So it can really help with lower use rates um, hit the pests that we were targeting. But chlorpyrifos is still a very important product. Um, we still support it and many geographies are still using it. So with the court's decision um, and other states have other um, decisions pending, um, we're still actively um, defending chlorpyrifos and its uses. Good. Yeah, it's sometimes hard with those court decisions, kind of like we saw with Dicamba. You know, you have a federal ruling and then the states kind of take it down to, to their own level. So it's always good to have a little bit of clarity as far as, you know, what the, what the ruling actually means for, for growers and producers in their specific state. So. Good stuff. David, did you, uh, did you have anything to add to Clipper False? Do you still have uses um, for it? We do. Um, there's a couple of really important uses for chlorpyrifos. Uh, first is a seed treatment. Um, it's used especially in, in processing peas for early season pest management like seed corn maggot. Uh, and there's really not a whole lot of other seed treatment options. So that's one where chlorpyrifos really helps. The other one where uh, chlorpyrifos is uh, extremely important is on peach trees. We've got an insect that bores into trunks of trees and then tunnels into the roots uh, called the peach tree borer. And historically, chlorpyrifos has been the best product to manage that particular insect. Oh, that's great. It's also, it's also used from time to time for grasshoppers um, in various field crops. But uh, those, those two pests are, are the primary um, like needs that if we didn't have the product, we'd be in a, uh, it, it would be a, a not good for pe uh, integrated pest management having options available. Good stuff, thanks. We'll now move on out of our main topic and go to our weekly watch out. This is where we look ahead over the next seven to 10 days and what we really need to look for. David, do you have anything that you would recommend that our growers look for over the next seven to 10 days? Sure. And actually, uh, Tony's uh, mention of a couple of products is a great dovetail into what we need to watch out for uh, for some crops. So right now, we've got a pretty fair amount of sorghum on Delmarva. Uh, some of that was really late planted. So some of those plants are still in the pollinating stage to early milk. And we need to watch out for sugarcane aphids. It's a fairly new pest for us, uh, but they build up into just hellacious numbers on the underside of sorghum leaves. And they create a, a thick honeydew and they basically suck the, the life out of the plant. Um, we've got a threshold of 30% uh, infested plants with localized areas of heavy honeydew present. Uh, and this aphid is problematic because the only two products that um, have good sugarcane aphid activity are Transform, which is a Corteva product, and Savanto. 
Uh, they're they are um, they're far better than anything else. Uh, Lors band just ticks them off. Dimethoate just ticks them off, but they resurged within a week. Uh, pyrethroids don't do anything to them. So that's something that we need to watch out for. Um, in uh, soybeans, we need to be looking out for uh, corn arum again in the double crops. And I think if, if we don't see corn arum in the double crop by the end of say next week, we're not gonna have an issue with them. Uh, we started getting a lot in sweep nets last week um, and some local consultants were reporting them in Southern Delaware last week up as far north as Milford. Um, they were small worms, they're still small. Uh, the temperature is gonna, gonna slow them down a little bit, but uh, our moth flight is declining. So I think if, if we do not see them by the end of next week, we're probably safe. Another pest to watch out for is stink bug. Uh, they tend to pile up in the double crop beans. Um, thresholds for those are five stink bugs and 15 sweeps. Uh, it's lower if you're growing sorghum, or uh, excuse me, if you're growing soybeans for, for seed production or as edible pods, um, then the, that threshold is, is lower by uh, half. Um, stink bugs cause the most damage during the early pod filling stages. Once we hit that full pod stage, they're associated more with quality losses than anything else. Uh, also um, in alfalfa, uh, be checking for blister beetles. Um, we, they sometimes will move into flowering alfalfa late in the fall and congregate, and we do not want blister beetles in alfalfa hay. Uh, and then, um, you know, corn is, we're getting ready to harvest corn. Um, so one thing that some folks might see are hooked banana ears. This is sometimes caused by stink bug, and the stink bugs will move in before tassel push and feed on that developing ear when it's about this big, you know, about a, you know, a couple inches long, still in the stalk. And uh, it'll cause that ear to hook as it's growing. Um, so it's just something that you may notice. There's nothing you can do about it, but you may notice it right about now. No, that's, that's a really good call out. Sometimes you get those crazy ears and I know you get the ones on the side uh, of, of the woods that the ears right off the top of the plant and stuff. And, you know, that's from the deer eating it earlier. I think that's pretty neat. But you bring up a good point about sorghum. And I know that we have had quite a bit more sorghum grown on the Delmarva Peninsula than probably we really ever have. Um, and I know growers like it for a couple different reasons. Um, one, that the ear really don't like it until the head comes out on it because um, it's got those kind of spiky leaves with the hairs on it that the deer don't want. Um, it, it's a little bit less input cost than corn to put out there. And, um, and, the, and the price can be, you know, commodity prices aren't the best right now, but the price can be okay. So we need to make sure that, and, and what, I, what I'm getting at with that is a lot of those growers that are growing sorghum are growing it for the first time and kind of trying to figure it out as they go. So we need to make sure that those growers are getting out there and looking for the sugarcane aphids in the next week to 10 days. That's right. Corn earworm will also get into sorghum. Um, we shake heads in the buckets. Uh, and we're, if we're seeing 
you know, one to two earworms per head, then we need to call in a spray on them. But the, the sugarcane aphid is also, uh, it's, I think it's going to become a more reliable pest up here, especially in late, late planted fields and on varieties that are not tolerant to aphid injury. Uh, the sorghum checkoffs website does have a table of early and uh, medium early varieties that are partially resistant to sugarcane aphid. Um, so I encourage people uh, to either check that out or to contact me and I'll send you a listing of varieties. We don't know how well some of the varieties grow in the mid-Atlantic. Uh, moving forward, we will be doing some variety trials here at uh, Georgetown um, with the idea of comparing the varieties with and without aphid pressure. So if aphids move into the variety trial, we'll spray half the plots with either Savanto or Transform to keep those aphids out. Uh, so we get uh, good yield comparisons with and without aphids. Yeah, and I'll echo what David said there. Most seed companies do provide um, some kind of score for sugarcane aphid tolerance. So Pioneer, we rate our products on a one to nine. So if you're a grower that is in the sorghum um, and you're having a sugarcane aphid, make sure we're having the conversation about, you know, what um, product you're using and if there's a better option for for sugarcane aphids, you know, going forward. Because like Chris said, we've seen sorghum absolutely take off um, here in the mid-Atlantic. And, you know, it's partly because of commodity prices, like Chris said, part of it's deer. Uh, sorghum or sorghum seems to stand up a little bit better to uh, deer pressure and smaller field sizes. Um, so, but there, there's plenty to learn about sorghum. I agree with both of you guys. No, that's great stuff and great point, Ryan. Um, you can definitely look at the characteristics or talk to your local seed dealer to be able to find out which ones have, have more resistance than others. But I'm excited about your trial that you guys are doing at University of Delaware. I think that'll be great information and uh, it'll, we'll, we'll look forward to seeing the results on which ones are working better than others. Thanks, David. Well, thank you all for joining us today on the Pioneer Northeast Agronomy podcast. If you have any questions regarding insects and row crops, please contact your local Pioneer rep or your local extension agent. And be sure to tune in next week for a new topic with our guest speakers, Brian Peterman, as Integrated Solutions Consultant for Atlantic Tractor, along with Kelly Herbick, our digital sales leader for the Granular Insights platform. Brian and Kelly will be discussing how to prepare for harvest, both technologically and mechanically. For more agronomic advice, follow our guest David Owens on Twitter at obuggers, that's spelled O-H buggers, or sign up for the University of Delaware's weekly crop update by Googling University of Delaware's weekly crop update. To listen to the full library of Pioneer Northeast Agronomy podcasts, search Pioneer Agronomy Northeast on your podcast app. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.